Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think that everybody wants to break the cycle of violence. Think about your own kids. Do you want them to go into a violent relationship. And if you're serious about breaking the cycle of violence, then you have to speak up and you have to own and be accountable for your own story. That was Mel Thomas. And this is episode 195 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. G'day and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Here we go again for the 195th time. I'm grateful to have your company as we talk today to Mel Thomas. She is the uh, co. She is the founder of the Key Up Project. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at KYUP Project. At KYUP Project. She's a fantastic woman. I, I can't wait for you to hear her story. I'll tell you a little bit more about her and. In, in just a second. Uh, quick first up, bit of uh, housekeeping. Um, there might be some changes coming to this show in the coming weeks. Uh, I'll let you know about that. Um, if you are into podcasting, if you do podcast and you're, you're a fan of independent digital broadcasting, you may want to check out the um, OzPod conference, which is happening in Sydney in a couple of weeks. I'll be hosting it. I know Charlie Clawson's doing some stuff there as well. There's going to be some heavy hitter podcasters from around the country to be there. If you've been thinking about podcasting or getting into podcasting or you're just interested in this as yet kind of unlicensed, ungoverned medium, which is a kind of fascinating thing to be a part of, it's uh, it's going to be great. O-Z-P-O-D. Just go search that and you'll find it. Big thanks to everyone that supported the show on Patreon this week. Thanks to the new people that supported. I'm really grateful to have you along. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Osher is where you can support the show. Podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. And so I've got to find the money to make this show somewhere. And at this point, that money is coming from you, people just like you who have decided, you know what, this show is worth five bucks a month. Some people have decided it's worth more. And for those people, I'm very grateful. But uh, on Patreon, it allows you to give back to people who have um, pledged money to you each week. And each month, I should say, I should say. And 
at different levels of pledges, there's different rewards and the reward for uh, five bucks and up is exclusive access to a podcast that only you get to hear and they're exclusive episodes that only you hear and I send them out uh, about every month. So thanks to everyone that did support this week. Thanks to everyone that continues to support. Without you, can't make the show, can't pay Andy, my producer, or Haley, my production coordinator. So thank you, thank you so much. Also, big thanks to all the great pictures you've been sending me this week. I love getting a podsy in the mail, the email that is, P-O-D-S-I-E. Just It's a photo that you're taking of the phone you're listening to this on right now of what you're looking at while you're listening to this. So whatever you're looking at, oh, it might be the inside of a train carriage or walking the kid or feeding the dog or, as is in often the times, housework. A lot of housework. I do all my housework listening to podcasts. Uh, just snap a photo of it and send it off uh, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Snapchat, uh, or email if you like, send Osher email at gmail.com. Thanks to everyone that writes in. Uh, I do try to write back to everybody. So if you have something that you want to talk to me about, yeah, just email me. Super easy. I hope your weekend was good. I spent my weekend in beautiful Bribey Island, which is just off the coast of Brisbane. Uh, it's also known as God's Waiting Room. It's a retirement community. Uh, but my in-laws live there. They are pretty much the youngest people on their block by a good 20, 30 years. Uh, so they're uh, just total go-getters. Uh, but yeah, we had a full big island Fiji wedding, uh, Fijian wedding there, and it was awesome. It was great. It was really great. Um, one of my cousins, uh, everyone, I'm figuring this out, everyone my age or around my age is a cousin and everyone older is uncle or aunt, unless they're the grandparents or great-grandparents. So one of my cousins, uh, she is, uh, she works in um, social welfare and she was just in a country called Kiribati, which is uh, north of Australia and just to the right a bit on the map. So north and east of Australia, it's up near the equator. And you might have heard of Kiribati because it's uh, it's a country that climate change is affecting right now, not in 50 years, not in 30 years, but now. And people are losing their homes and their way of life is pretty much completely gone. Um, they've lost the land they were farming on. Uh, if you know how water works and fresh drinking water works on a, on a sand island, um, the rainwater falls in and forms this kind of a cell like a bubble inside a seawater bubble uh, within there. Anyway, the rising seawater has contaminated that, so they've, they've got no food to eat and they've got no water to drink and their country's disappearing. <laughs> it's really heavy. It's a really heavy story. Um, and so she's been out there doing grief counselling and running workshops on how to help people deal with trauma because their homes and their entire way of life and their culture are disappearing. Um. Why am I telling you this? I don't know, because in the middle of all this love and fun and joy and the the groom's mum sang him a song on a ukulele, a, a wedding song in Fiji, and it was just totally beautiful and it was so much food and it was great. There was this story and I, I guess it really, it really made me want to, I guess, talk about the fact that here's this country that has probably had fuck all carbon emissions in its entire lifetime. Just falling into the ocean well the ocean's rising up and swallowing it um, because of what the rest of the world has been doing and it's the first one but there's going to be many more to come and you know might you might think that your choices day to day don't affect your immediate community in your in your street in your suburb in your city in your country but they do affect the greater 
population of the planet. Everything we do, everything you do, everything I do. Shit, I've I've driven four hundred kilometers and taken two planes in the in the last three days. Um, you know, I've got a fairly healthy carbon carbon output myself this weekend. But everything we do, every choice we make, has an effect on someone else. And I just, I guess I wanted, I wanted to keep that in mind. I wanted us to keep that in mind this week. Um, I did have a, oh shit, sorry, two bad stories in a row. You know how it is when you have a full weekend family. Sometimes you need a moment. So I, I decided to go for a run and I went for a run uh, today around Bribie, up, up to White Patch and back uh, on Bribie Island. Um, I was going to go for a run with uh, Georgia, a stepdaughter, and uh, there was there was a miscommunication. No, there wasn't. There was a a discrepancy in decision of which way we were going to run when we got about a kilometre into it. And see, in my head, I'd been dreaming about this run all weekend. I'm going to run up to that place. I'm going to touch that sign. I'm going to turn around. You know, it's about five k. Not a long run. It's going to take about forty minutes. Um, I'm going to run down there, I'm going to touch that sign, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to run back. It's going to be great. My head's going to clear up. It's going to be some time. I'm going to just run and, you know, decompress a bit after all the uh, intensity of great conversation and, you know, a house full of 20 people for three days. It was brilliant to be around everyone, but I do need sometimes, just need 40 minutes to just go and run. So in my head, I'm envisioning, envisioning, envisioning this run. But that's not the way that she wants to go. And, of course, I stick my heels in because I'm just fixated on this particular way we were going to run and I can't let it go. And we ended up butting heads. We didn't have to. We didn't have to. I feel real shit about it. Um, trying to find a way to heal. You know, I think that's the way. You can't, you can't be perfect as a parent. You can definitely not be perfect as a step-parent. You can try and... You're going to fuck up. I know you're going to fuck up every now and again. I certainly fuck up every day. But it's just the case of how am I, you know, just trying to find ways to heal that rupture with her. Um, I certainly know it kills Audrey when she gets between us because she doesn't want to take sides. I understand that. So, I, uh, yeah, just trying to figure out, figure out a way to make, to heal that. Um see if we can't get past it um, but yeah I've got to learn to let go man I've got to let go way more even though I had it in my idea this was the way that we were going to run and it was going to feel so good I just got to let it go we did end up running running for 40 minutes or so I can't tell you how much it makes my brain feel good and that's the thing by the end of the run I was actually feeling alright <laughs> because yeah it was a good 5k it was a good 5k um, anyway, if you're in Brisbane next week on the bridge to Brisbane, make sure you say hi. I'll be the slow one shuffling in the back. It's a 10K. I haven't run a 10K in a long time, but, uh, come and say good day. If you listen to the podcast, let's run for a little bit together and have a chat. So I want to tell you about my guest today. I'm grateful that this woman can come on the show. Mel Thomas is the founder of their Key Up project. What is the Key Up project? It is a project that, as a, I guess it's a business that she runs, which is out about empowering the next generation to value and 
champion their own safety and well-being. Uh, you can find Mel on Twitter at KYUP Project, KYUP, K-Y-U-P Project, it's a, it's a Korean word, or kiyupproject.com.au. Mel's a, a really interesting woman. She's a, a writer, a speaker, a media commentator, and she's a mother of two girls. She's got more than 15 years martial arts experience in a martial art called Hapkido, which is a Korean art of self-defense. And she created the Kiyup Project as a, a self-worth and self-protection program to help break the cycle of violence against women and children. You see, Mel was born into the cycle of violence. As you know, violence is a cycle. It does have its different stages, which I'm sure you know. But that cycle continued within Mel as she grew up and became a young woman independent of her family. And it was, in fact, only a fortunate turn of events that broke that cycle, which I will leave her to tell you about. Um, it's a really interesting story, and the work she does now is really powerful and very, very important. Um, we talk about it later in the show, but we go to so much effort to, you know, teach a kid, if you fall into the pool, here's how to find the edge of the pool. Or, uh, if, when you go to the beach, here's how you swim between the flags. Or if you get caught in a rip, this is what to do. But we tend to not teach um, young people, especially young women, how to identify if you're in a relationship that is is dangerous, or if, or if indeed you are already in the cycle of abuse. So here's the big trigger warning. We talk about domestic violence quite a bit in this conversation. It's parts of it are going to be tough to hear, and it's totally understandable if this is a tough subject for you to broach. I totally understand. Maybe skip this week. We'll talk next week. That'll be fine. If you do need help, if you are in Australia, you can call a phone number 1-800-737-732 or you can just type out 1-800-RESPECT on the letters on your phone. If you are outside of Australia, I, I certainly hope there are resources and I'm sure there will be resources near you uh, that you'll be able to uh, re reach out to and just talk to someone, just talk to someone, particularly if in this conversation it reframes something that happened in your past like an incident that happened in your past uh, and you kind of process it in a certain way, but on hearing this conversation, you think, hang on a second, and it, it might have been something different to what you thought it was. Uh, if you do need help, 1-800-737-732. We do go deep in this one. It gets gritty for a little while. There are a few tears, but we do turn the corner and we do leave you uplifted, I promise. So you can follow Mel on Twitter and let her know that you heard her on the show. She's at KeyUp, K-Y-U-P, Project, at KeyUp Project. But enjoy this conversation with the wonderful Mel Thomas. How are you, Mel? I'm good. Thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for, for inviting me. Oh, of course, of course. Well, you came from, from the other side of the harbour. Yes. Which, well, it's school holidays at the moment, so I hope it wasn't too much of a chore. No, it was easy. I used to live here, so... You used to live in Bronte? I used to live in Vaucluse. Oh, My right. best friend lives in Bronte. So um, we bought a, a house over in Clontarf. Mm -hmm. I can actually see where I used to live from my bedroom window. Wow. Yeah. As the crow flies. Yeah. Crows are very smart animals. <laughs> very, crows are very, very clever. Um, so you grew up in Sydney? Yes. Yeah, yeah, Sydney in, girl. in Vaucluse? No, I didn't grow up in Vaucluse. Uh, my mum's family came from Randwick in Chemist Street. So, um, 
they went from there, then they moved out to Bankstown and when my mum met my father, we grew up in Hurstville. Right. I grew up yeah. in Brisbane so yeah. I don't really know what Hurstville is. Hurstville's a working class, very um, mixed, multicultural community. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. So when you say mixed, multicultural, are you uh, is, is it more uh, – South Asian? Is it more Eastern European? Is it more Middle Eastern? Um, well, I went to Hersel South Public School and that was very Middle Eastern. And But now you would definitely qualify it as, as very Asian. Right. But, you know, you just, you don't know. What yeah. You don't yeah. Know. You just it's really up. fascinating watching how much, how much Sydney's changed only in the last yeah. 18 years that I've been here. Um, I was just spending a lot of time up in Brisbane and uh, Goodna, which is out where near my brother lives, um, it's like full Pauline territory. Mm. Like it's fully it. And you walk around and certainly in my brother's street, we are one of four Anglo families on the street. Yeah. Everything, everybody else is, you know, South Asian or Sudanese or whatever. And so I, not that I condone the kind of behaviour but I get it. If you've lived there your whole life and suddenly the suburbs changing around you, it would freak you out. Yeah. And you might, you know, look to someone for simple answers. So I, I kind of understand how that kind of thing could have come up in that part of Australia, but we digress. No, you know the whole Pauline Hanson, the Asians are taking the jobs. Yeah. I, I remember um, definitely an undercurrent of racism through my childhood, yeah, you know, the Asians, they, mm-hmm. they couldn't see properly or they couldn't drive properly. Yeah. And and my best friends in school were Asian and I'm just looking yeah. and going, I just don't kind of get it. I think we were the first generation, we're about the same age, we're the first generation to start questioning and going, well, I don't agree. Right. And it was coming but, from the people older than you? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, my grandparents, and, and they would never consider themselves racist. Mm. Absolutely. But... Uh, there definitely was those comments and the remarks and the yeah. and, and the stuff that you would just do a complete double take at now yeah. I mean, and, and call point blank racism. Yeah. But growing up then, um, yeah, it was just. But I remember as a little kid, you know, you'd hear some older person tell a joke mm-hmm. and you hear everybody laugh and you go, oh, I might take that to school tomorrow. And yeah. you tell that joke and everybody laughs. Yeah. And then now I think about that joke, I'm like, what kind of monster was I? <laughs> I had no idea what the hell I was, you know, saying. We didn't. But it's so easy. It was so easy to see how that thing is transferred and unquestioningly mm. from, from, you know, generation to generation. Um, so your mum grew up in Randwick, which is just down the road here. Yes, mum's um, family, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And where was your dad from? Uh, he was from around Hurstville. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think. I don't know. Really? Actually, yeah. No, I don't know. Wow. Yeah. We didn't ask, I didn't ask a lot of questions about my father's family because it was quite strained. Yeah. Um, yeah, when I was about six or seven, he stopped talking to his mother. Right. And also my aunt. And how's this? I didn't see my aunt for over maybe 25 years and... When I started my work and, and started like processing how I wanted to move forward with the past and I wanted to start with forgiveness. I just wanted just a clean slate. And I thought I should, I should ring my dad, even though I didn't know if he was alive or dead, I should call him and um, 
and say, look, you know, I'm doing okay. Everything's all right. I forgive you. Yeah. Um, I didn't know where to start. I didn't know where he lived. or But I did remember my aunt's name and she's got a, quite a, an unusual surname. And I looked her up in the phone book, the old school phone book. Yeah. And... Left a message and so she just called for, me back. Just for younger listeners, now yes. the phone book, <laughs> it was about, I don't know, 10 centimetres or 12 centimetres high. There was two of them. One went from A to L and one went from K to Z, or A to K, one from L to Z. Um, and they had names of people and there was a number. And when you rang it, there was a thing in your on your wall <laughs> that you would pick up and then you would be connected unbroken by wire from where your mouth was to where their ear was. Anyway, so you called your, mom, you called your aunt. I called my aunt. And she said, I want to see you. Oh, wow. Turned out she was living you know, just down the road in Double Bay. Wow. Uh, knocked on the door, opened the door, and we are the spitting image of each other. Good gracious. Um, and we just filled in all these these gaps. Yeah. But I, I, don't, I still don't know where they grew up. It would be around there somewhere. Right. Sort of southern Sydney. Yeah, I've, I've heard in, in um, you know, it's not – it's more common than a lot of people realise, those kind of things in families where sons will not talk to fathers or, or mothers or absolutely will not speak to brothers or sisters. Yeah. Um, a really extreme example is that um, I met a funeral celebrant recently who told me that she's been at funerals where family members on the way to the funeral have taken out an ADO on another family wow. member to prevent them from coming into a funeral. Really? Can you imagine? Yeah, that's a lot of anger, yeah, resentment and that's pain. Yeah, <laughs> you're exact on the money. You're like, because the weight of walking around with that pain inside you, mm. is it worth it? No. <laughs> no it's just a... But so you, you touched on a little bit about, about, about the work the work that you do, which is empowering young women and, and young men to, um, I guess, identify and uh, be able to protect themselves from uh, domestic violence and other forms of other forms of violence. You have a, a, a story attached to that. Did that start when when you were out at Hurstville? Yeah, I was born into domestic violence, so it was my normal. I didn't know any different. Um, and I grew up with family violence at a time when we didn't have the language for it. You know, no kid ever came to school and said, I think I'm having welfare issues. You know, we called it what it was, which was dad was losing it. Um, dad hits mum. We didn't talk about it with each other. We didn't talk about it with neighbours. And you certainly didn't talk about it with the cops. I remember I interviewed, well, recently I interviewed a senior police officer from that time. Because I remember growing up and calling the cops you know, fairly frequently when I thought that dad was going to kill mum. That's the level of seriousness it had to be at. And, you know, it wasn't unusual to hear yells and screams in our street. We were in a block of, block of units and, you know, working class suburb. And as I said, I don't know if I did say this, but it was like a normal social behaviour pattern at that time according to the Australian Institute of Criminology. Anyway, I digress. I, um, I interviewed this senior officer and he said, Mel, you know, the courts were told to not clog up the courts with domestics. And I believe it. Because there was just so many of it and it was just going to clog up. Clogging up the courts with the domestics. And um, I guess, yeah, it was, it was just my normal. Yeah. 
Do you have brothers and sisters? I have a little sister. Right. Yeah. And how old were you when she showed up? Three. Right. Okay. Yeah. So fairly close, but mm. old enough that did you feel a sense of protection over her? Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And she's got a very different memory of our childhood to me. I mean, she definitely remembers the violence, but I think that she was a little more sheltered mm. and... More interestingly, her experiences of trouble was when I became a teenager. Right. Yeah. So she sort of sees a lot of upset in the life when I was being bullied and then I joined a gang to to get back at the bullies and so she remembers all this. Right. Mm. Do you – how old were you when you started to identify a pattern in – the behaviour of your parents of like things are horrible and then there's a blow up and then they'll be quiet and then everything will be rosy and then things will start to escalate and then it'll blow up again and then like that cycle. You know, I think this is the most simple definition of domestic violence I could probably ever give you. And I just, I know it's, I'll answer that question, but it's um, the person who causes the pain is the person that gives the relief. Now, don't you think that's just so profound? Mm. So, um, you know, that cycle, recognising the cycle of violence, honestly, I didn't recognise it until I had my daughter when I was in my early 30s. I didn't know I was in a, you know, I was in a cycle of violence. Uh, I never considered myself a victim. My mum was a victim of domestic violence. I wasn't a victim of bullying. That was just girls being bitches at school. I wasn't a victim of street violence because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and I wasn't a victim of intimate partner violence because I had done or said the wrong thing and I got what I deserved. That was my take on violence against me. And, you know, as I said, we grew up in a time in our community, in this society where we didn't have a language for it. There was no domestic violence campaigns There was no welfare campaigns. Yeah. It was just the way it was. So you grew up with, just to make sure I heard you correctly, Mm -hmm. the way you framed it your whole life, you never saw yourself as a victim of it because it was always a consequence of, I think to to be clear, like you were the one that had caused it in the way you had been seeing it, like I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, I said the wrong thing, um, they were just girls being bitches, you know, I, I deserved it. Mm. Um, and if you, I guess if you don't know that it's wrong, that might be the way that you rationalise yeah. it. Yeah. No, but, I definitely had this lens of violence was okay. It was a way to resolve issues if you needed to. Mm. Um, it was a way to control I was being, I, I grew up being controlled by my father and watched him control my mother um, and, and not directly but control all the relationships around us. So it just was, it just wasn't, no, it was normal. I never thought, oh, I've got it tough or my life sucks. It just mm. was so the way it was. you didn't see any other families that had a different cycle around that time? You weren't able to observe other families with a different relationship structure? Not really. Wow. Because we were, it was quite controlling environment. So I had to come directly home from school. All these things, alcoholism, racism, um, 
they really they feed into this this ugly state of thought, mm. doesn't it? And I don't know. I've just kind of lost track. No, of no, no. It's, it, I guess you know what you're just. <laughs> but what you're describing is that it wasn't just the violence going on that the, the violence manifested in in speech, the violence manifested in patterns of behaviour, the violence manifested in control of of you. So it wasn't just the action of one part of my body hitting uh, another part of your body. It's it's every small micro actions. Yeah. That that. Under, the undercurrent of all of it. And I guess I was asking about, you know, did you see any other families that yes. didn't have what you had? Yeah, um, there, yeah, there was a couple of families, but I never really got close to them. So we just, yeah, did, I didn't experience it. Right. I didn't, yeah. Right. Were there... Were there it's a good parts? question. I'm sitting there thinking about going, was, was there a lot of influence? I guess there were a couple of families that, that I we hung out with but yeah it wasn't right there was a neighbor that we had and we used to go around to her place and her parents were really nice to each other yeah and but i thought because she was an only daughter that that <laughs> was the only reason they were so nice is because she was an only child wow so uh if she had a sibling that her parents would have been arguing and fighting like mine were right that was the logic of like yeah. a ten-year-old. Were there any particular times of day or days of the week that were, as a kid, you're like, "Oh shit, Sunday, fuck, everyone's going to be home all day today. I got to be careful today." Yeah, I, it's that's a really interesting question, um, because Dad had probably unresolved or definitely undiagnosed mental health issues, and he had problems with alcohol and gambling, so. We never really knew, and I'm absolutely certain that he had depression. And so you didn't know from one day to the next if you were going to wake up and it was going to be a normal day. A good day if he wasn't there. That was a good day. Right. I would come home from school and I could smell. And we lived in this huge apartment block and I, to this day, could tell, I could smell, I could sense if, he was going to be home from probably a block up the road. I just knew. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm so into intuition and understanding intuition when it comes to violence and, yeah. and our bodies. Well, as a kid you become hyper-alert. You become Absolutely. You, you develop this spider sense of every tiny little, you may not yeah. be able to consciously recognise it, but every tiny little signal, facial signals, uh, tones of voice, speech, sense, that all lead to the danger point, all that have triggered it in the past, they just start alerting you from ages away. That's a hell of a way to be a kid when everyone else is running around with bloody crayons and sticker books. Yeah, I guess it was. I guess it was. Uh, but it just was the way that it was. Yeah. And if, you, if you're saying that it was such part of a normal social structure for many kids that you went to school with, um, as it sounds that your father's behaviours and attitudes had come from his parents, did you see this stuff manifesting then at school? Did, you know, did this violence then come out into the, into the schoolyard? Uh, in primary school, I think, I think everybody got on with it. I look back now and there were kids that were wetting themselves in class and, you know, there, there was kids that were unwashed and their clothes were, you know, 
you don't realise at the time they're just just kids being kids. But I look back now and I can see that that we're a pretty damaged little group. Yeah, right. <laughs> Predominantly damaged group of children. Oh, that's a big sweeping statement, but we were loving and, and yeah. kind to each other in primary school. High school, completely different. Yeah. I wonder, like, just to, about that primary school scenario, yeah. I wonder what it was like to be a teacher then. I wonder if as a teacher you could go, fuck, I, I know something fucked is going on. Here. I had a bikey teacher. Excellent. Yeah. I had a bikey teacher. She was a full bikey. And I used to set up my table with this girl that I went to class with and Erin. I loved her. And she was really crafty. And she used to bring in tablecloths and stuff like that. And <laughs> and I'd say, it looks so nice. And I remember this bikey teacher turning around saying, don't say nice. So, okay, you know, you want to please your teacher. And there's no such thing as nice. It's either good or it's bad. So I'm like, oh, I'll take the tablecloth off. <laughs> I don't want to upset Jesus. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to upset her. And she'd come in with this gravelly voice and a long hair and a leather jacket. I've just been down to Perga Creek for the weekend <laughs> at the Beano. Good God. Oh, it's bad. There's <laughs> no nice. Jesus. I know. <laughs> I'm gonna lose it. No, no. I've thought about that in ages. Well, no, no. That, wow, that is. Mm. I had a biker teacher at school. <laughs> he was funny, and then it was a photo of him uh, at, at the Perga Creek bike rally uh, in one of the biker magazines, and um, there was a photo of him uh, having a little nap in the sun, but uh, he was in the shade of his bike. Unfortunately for him, he was wearing uh, one of my school's rugby jerseys to have a <laughs> have a nap in. <laughs> Yeah, he didn't work at the school after that. Well, I was so pissed off because he, he was a fun guy. <laughs> Jeff, his name was. He, uh, was. he was a good bloke. Well, I remember watching a lot of videos with our bikey. She must have had rough weekends on Mondays. Just wheel the TV in? <laughs> she did. Yeah. Wheel the TV in, yeah. Yeah, oh, man. Mm. So, you know, at, at school... You know, you mentioned it because I, you know, I remember mm. as a kid growing up in Brisbane as well. You know, I remember looking at other kids and like just crusty snot trails down their faces. <laughs> kind of like, what the fuck do you not have like a, a wet, like a rag in your house? <laughs> Stop, you're killing me. You know, and yeah, and exactly the kids who are nine, ten years old mm. wetting them, mm. wetting themselves. Yeah. Um, like as we know now, that is a huge sign that not that you just miss toilet training, but there's something. That's, not right. Yeah. And that was going on all around but no one I, I, said anything. I can't imagine what it must have been like for the teachers. You know, I, I think there was definitely a, you know, an overall sense of caring in that yeah. school and everybody was doing their best. Yeah. But, you know, looking back, you can see the struggle. Yeah. What were uh, what were summer holidays like when there wasn't that structure of you and your sister you know, going somewhere every day. Did you ever go away on holidays? Were, were holidays hard? Yeah, holidays were hard. Yeah, they they dragged out. Uh, we didn't really go away much. I remember but um, Dad took us up to Queensland surface and I think he left us sitting out in the front of the casino for half a day. <laughs> Unbelievable. In the car? No, we got to sit on a rock. <laughs> front of the casino. 
I think there would have been other kids there, honestly. <laughs> we just sat there. I know. We sat there all day. Then he lost all our money and he <laughs> pissed off, drove back to Sydney and left my mum and with two kids to try and pay the bill and work this out. I don't even know how she did it. Holy I don't know how she did it. moly. Yeah. And, and, that- and because when Dad was gambling, if he was up, he was a high roller. He, he was over generous and everyone loved him. Absolutely yeah. loved him. He would be the most charismatic, funny man in the room. I, I, I like to think that if he'd been, if, he, if he'd got the help that he, he needed, yeah. that he might have changed, that he would have made some different choices in life because there was this really great side to him. Yeah. And, yeah, I don't think that, that he would have wanted this legacy. Actually, he's not alive now. Um, but I think that he kind of would like that I've used this experience mm. to try and, and help others um, and, and to stand strong in it and to speak out. When you kind of talk about that, though, there are probably people listening who have had an experience with a parent or, you know, a relative who have been violent towards them and they may not have that such a compassionate attitude. What can be gained? What would you say to them about finding that compassionate place where you just came from going, mm. if he'd only got the help, he would have been all right. What can you say about moving to that frame of reference to someone who's been so violent to you and your mother? Mm. Well, first of all, I'm between one and three and one and ten. So my experience is, is more common than not at that time. And I would say that... I think that everybody wants to break the cycle of violence. Think about your own kids. Do you want them to go into a violent relationship? And if you're serious about breaking the cycle of violence, then you have to speak up and you have to own and be accountable for your own story. And I think staying angry leaves burden on your shoulders. It it leaves grief with you. It's probably one of the most significant moments in my life, having my daughter and making a choice to not be defined by my past. Certainly surreal that I find myself talking about the history of family violence in Australia. Uh, But I think that I can talk about it because I'm not weighed down by it. I just see it's a big piece of a very big puzzle that we need to get we need to get in place. Mm. There's not a whole lot of conversation around our generation. What are we? What are we? The I don't know. I'm 43. Gen X, so. yeah, same. Um, there's not a there's there's a lot there's it's great there's a lot of conversation going on around women mm. and and people spouse supporting them in getting out of the relationship. But I find it interesting that a third of the kids that are my age went on to repeat that cycle of violence and I imagine they never knew another normal. Right. I imagine that they too grew up with families that were having mental health problems or alcohol addiction, all sorts of addictions, and it was just all left unsaid. Yeah. Say it. Yeah, we had this um, at the time. It was such a, um, you know, we don't we don't speak of these things. Mm. You know, um, 
you know, I would, it's, it's not. And there were so many things in society that we just didn't speak of. You know, we didn't, we didn't speak of the gay uncle. We didn't speak of the, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the domestic violence. We didn't speak of, you know, the, the brother who's in prison. Mm. We didn't, you know, maybe the only one that's left is we don't, we don't speak about miscarriages really in our mm. society. That's probably, that's probably like the, we don't speak of death. You know, people don't mention it. People are afraid to speak about it. There's so many things we're afraid to speak of yet. You know, I feel like we put these things, these enormous emotional outbursts, but we don't let them out. That energy's got to go somewhere. And if we drive it within ourselves, it might not come out in a nice way. Yeah. Uh, um, when you mentioned, you mentioned high school, as, as we grow up and we become more powerful and we become, you know, we start, our bodies start to change, we suddenly become bigger. Um, I certainly remember... Um, there was a big day when I was now as strong as my big brother and no longer could be pushed around. I remember feeling a sense of power. Like suddenly I can, you know, I was this little child that could run under the kitchen table and now I can lift the whole thing off the ground and throw it if I wanted to. You know, suddenly I've got this, you know, I'm, I'm not like a, I'm not the Hulk, but, you know, you go from, you almost double in size in four years. Yeah. You know, and you get twice as much strength. You're superhero you know essentially and then but if you mix that with this cycle that you were talking about it can it can lead to to some pretty dastardly things is that what you know when you went to high school did you find these things start to come out so in high school that's when it really became clear that I didn't know how to deal with my anger I didn't know how to manage conflict I didn't know how to control not I'm trying to control my emotion I'm an emotional person I own that. There's no point trying to control it. You just let it go. I'm one of those people that just has watery eyes. <laughs> um, I think that comes from compassion and a big heart. And But in high school, it was, I was fragile. I was really fragile. Um, to masquerade that frailty, and it's, I see it all the time with the kids that I work with, you put on this bravado, this tough, I, I, that was for me as a girl, you know, as a boy, I reflect on the boys that were in my life and I'm sure that they had that experience that you had of, of this strength mm. and knowing and this rage, you know, these boys, I mean, oh man, they, they used to do unthinkable things to each other, whip each other with cords, fight, try and throw each other on train tracks you know, this this stab each other over $20. And this is a level of so much lack of self-respect mm. and self-confidence and it just comes out in this physical, this physicality. And, and when you've had a front row seat to unhealthy relationships and and being unable to resolve conflict... You just reenact. You do what you do. Kids can't be what they can't see. Exactly. And if you've only ever seen your father dealing with anger and a situation that he doesn't like with explosive violence, mm. if you're a kid and that's all you know, that's all you know. You don't know any other way to do it. And charm. <sighs> right? So because it was two-faced, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was really two-faced. It's, it's one of the, the biggest life lessons that I can pass on to girls is 
beware the person who is overly charming, you know. It's, it's actually something you have to do. It's something you have to be. Uh, does that make sense? You've got to be it. You've got to turn it on. And if someone's being charming and they're asking you for something, then you've got to question, what's their agenda? What do they want from me? Why aren't they accepting my no? Um, yeah, a little bit of a... No, 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 that, no, no that's okay. So when you when, when you then come to high school and now you're suddenly dealing with these, um, you know, at some stages, by, certainly by the time you're 13 and 14, you're essentially the size and strength of an adult. Of an adult mm, yeah. With... Yep. Uh, uh, probably, if certainly if you're a boy, in my experience, a uh, five to six year old's ability to uh, to, to regulate your emotional state. <laughs> so, what? How old were were you when things started to you know get to those you know kind of real fights on the train tracks and stuff like that? Yeah, fourteen. Yeah, fourteen. Yeah, my favourite age to work with. Yeah, everything. It is absolutely. It's just when everything starts to fall apart, trying to, to identify who you are, you mm. want to be a good person. I think, I think everybody wants at, at deep down. I think the amount of real sociopaths are probably, you know, one in a gazillion. Mm. Um, we all want to be good people and it's, it's that real coming of age time, isn't it? Mm. And you have to start making choices. Who do you want to be? How, how do you want to play this out? And for me, I didn't want to be my mum and I didn't want to be my dad and I didn't want to be me. So I just didn't have any real role models. I didn't have any real – well, that's that's actually not true. There was my nan. Um, there were some extended family members who I absolutely loved and looked up to. But by that stage, you know, it's all about your peers. It's all about friendships and as any parent – well, no, the friends are first. And, yeah, so 14 for me was a really big turning point. I went from being quite sensitive to thinking this isn't getting me anywhere. No one respects sensitive. Nobody respects caring. They're walking all over me uh, and I'm going to make some different choices. It was very conscious choices too. Yeah. What was the first manifestation of that choice? Was there the, a particular person that was picking on you that one day you went, that's it, that's enough, I'm done? Yeah, there was a group of girls. Yeah, yeah there was a group of girls. Uh, <laughs> there's always a group of girls. There was a group of girls and there were a couple of incidents that really stood out. Um, the most significant being that my dad, my dad had hit me on the back of the legs with a golf club. Fucking hell. And I haven't told this story that often. Um, I was in science and I couldn't sit on the stools. And we had this really cute, um, like, what do they call them, student teachers? There's a really cute student teacher there and all the girls were showing off trying to get this guy's attention. And I can't sit on this stool because I was just in too much pain. And he was telling me to sit down. So to, to get around it, I was going, oh, you know, sorry, sir, I can't. I'm not sitting down today. I'm having a standing day or some smart-ass, you know, clown town comment. And the girls turned on me because here I was, you know, being disrespectful 
to this student teacher and I got I got sent out of the class and I just couldn't That was it. Yeah. I couldn't I couldn't I just couldn't work out how to deal with the situation. So it was either continue being an asshole or tell the truth. And um <laughs> it still gets really emotional for me. So one of the um, the teachers there, he said, look, this, it does, you seem to be acting out of character. This isn't not what you're normally acting like. And, yeah, just a kind, compassionate teacher. And so I told the truth and I said what had happened. And that was the beginning of the, the beginning of hell for me because... The girls just absolutely turned on me after that. Word got out that I was, you know, living with family violence and even though, believe it or not, years later I found out pretty much all these kids that were, that, um, were picking on me were dealing with the same situation. Anyway, they started bullying me a lot and, and it got really extreme. You know, it was not just in the class. It was after school and I just I had enough. I just snapped. I snapped. I don't want to live like this. And there was a group of, there was a group of young, young people that were from Glebe and the inner city and they used to come and sit on our train station and I just started talking to them and everyone was afraid of them. Yeah. And. Huh. <laughs> I'm just talking, I was wondering, like, my wife's a makeup artist. There'll be a, t- there'll be a tissue somewhere. Stand by. Oh, here we are. <laughs> here, we <go. clears throat> here we go. Thanks. Sorry. Tissue break. Tissue break. <laughs> um, yeah, so. But you're, you're, you're okay to talk about this stuff. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. All right. I just want to make sure. Like, I don't want to bring you here and, you know, make you recount horrible things. No, no, know. it's not about that. I guess it's just. Oh yeah, it's my it's my therapy session with Osha. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'm just kind of remembering the story, and right, yeah. I think that there's there's so many, you know, and, and I'm not the only one. Like everybody has these stories. So many people say to me that they either can completely relate and have the same experience, and they can tell me all these stories that happened to them, or they just don't get it. I went to a school, I went to an old boys school and I yeah. absolutely remember us and it's horrible to say but there was two feelings. Like when, like a pack of fucking jackals we turned on this one kid, at once it felt so empowering to not be the ringleader but be a part of something. You know, I, you know, I wasn't the ringleader but I was to be a part of something. Mm. But at the same time, thank fuck it's not me. Thank yeah. fuck they're not doing it to me. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like this, it's not like the feeling you get when you're jumping off a water slide or something like that, but there's this rush that you get that is exciting when you're a part of that pack, mm. when you're in that mob um, that is, um, you know, or, you know, say there's like four or five, just simply there's one particular moment, there was like four or five guys in front of me shouting things at this one kid. And I was standing there and I was like, I guess I was, I guess I was complicit by my presence, you know, and there was something exciting about it. 
And, you know, I think back now, it's fucking horrible. Yeah. It was awful what we were doing. Yeah. We were 14 or something. Yeah. Um, the golden age of 14. Yeah, but there was something so <laughs> overwhelmingly intoxicating with yeah. that feeling yeah. of, you know, you know, you, you get and, and like I've, I've hence felt that feeling again, unfortunately, like I've, I've been in riots, which uh, proper riots and mm. I thought I was going to, we thought we were going to die. It was really fucking scary. But when, mm. when a mob starts to, to move, it's a frightening, frightening, frightening thing. And if you were that kid, in your experience you were, to find some other people outside of that because it I can't imagine how alone you must have felt because yeah. there was no support at home. There was no support amongst your friends. There must have been, and you're 14 years old yeah. and your body's done to do wild things. It must have been so isolating. It was. It was a really isolating experience and I look back now and what it was was that because we'd never talked about this whole previous 13 years yeah. of family violence and there was no discussion around it. It was just sort of swept under the carpet and I was just going off the rails. Right. You know, rather than, than coming to terms and managing past violence, it was easier just to say, oh, you know, and God, you know, you're starting to look like a young woman. You're growing. And they just go, well, she's just going off the rails. She's losing it. I wasn't losing it at all. I just was growing into uh, a person who didn't have any skills or tools to act any other way, surviving, just going on basic survival. It's funny when you talk about that pack mentality, there's uh, a book that I was put onto um, by another girl world expert, Danny Miller, and she told me about this book called um, Queen Bees and Wannabes. And this is really interesting. When we're teenage girls, and I imagine the same things for boys, that everybody's jockeying for a position in the group and it's all just trading on your social status. So I went from being p quite a popular girl in year seven to another girl wanting to be more popular and deciding to, to make a move or make a play. And that just, I gave her this ammunition when I wasn't nice to the student teacher. Um, and, and, and it kind of all makes sense now, but at the time it's just this, this world that's blurring mm. around you and you can't make sense of it. You just want to get through it. And you, maybe for me, I didn't think that I was going to. The last thing you'd want to do is homework either. Like, didn't do any. Yeah. No. No. How are you going to, like, what was it like waking up in the morning? Did you just dread going to school? Yes. Yeah, and, and I'd liked it up until then. I liked school because in primary school it was escape. Mm. It was escape from home. Dreaded the holidays. They, they, were, they were the worst. But high school became just hell on top of hell. Mm. You know, went from just dysfunction junction at home to crazy dysfunction junction yeah. at school. And, and not having those closer relationships and bonds with your teachers like you did in primary school. Yeah, it was a really lonely, isolating experience. So then to find these kids at the train platform that day must have been... Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it, well, they look like power. They look like a way out. They looked like... Uh, I didn't need to be a victim anymore and people were not going to to bully me. Boys and girls? Yeah. Boys they and they girls. were boys and girls at the station? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. So I was in an all-girls school but we socialised the train stations before yeah. and after school. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's the only place you saw yeah. the other sex was on the, yeah. on the transport. Or the school musical. That was another thing. <laughs> um, so, you, so you saw these kids and um, – you know, I'm guessing they dress differently and they look different. Mm. Yeah, the real '90s gangster. <laughs> the, that movie. What was that movie? Colors. Oh right. Yeah. So the appropriation of the hip hop. Yeah. Of, okay. That was my world. Right. Yeah. I see. Like, here, have this NWA tape. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk to you in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to this first. <laughs> Let me tell you about Easy E. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. We were just tragic, weren't we? Oh, look, I've never heard anything so f- frightening. Mm. You know, nobody, get, nobody moved, nobody gets hurt. It was like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. It was terrifying. Like, this is this horrible, horrible story. Um, but so you started talking to these kids and they were, you, you'd see them regularly, these kids? Every day. Every day. So, yeah, just they took an interest in me and I took an interest in them and then it really wasn't, it was was a pretty slippery slope to drop out of school and just spend my days hanging out with them. I was going to ask that because at one point you might have just gone, turning up to school is awful and not Mm. turning up to school is easier than that. So Mm. I'm going to just not show up. And it was so, those kids weren't going to school already? Yeah, they weren't going to school already. Still living at home though? Oh, there were a couple of them were homeless. Wow. Yeah. So they were homeless. They were certainly living with – so there were a lot of Islander kids that I was hanging out with, um, Rockdale. They were tough, were tough kids. Yeah. You know, their hearts were hard. And Nobody what was trusted it? anybody. Right. And certainly didn't care about – had no respect for, for property – the police knew who I was, first name. Right. Yeah. So things like vandalism and stuff became a just a let's go do this today? Yeah, it was just, yeah, it was, it was just to stay. It was just to have that sense of community, that sense of family and whatever it took. And it, thankfully I was, I didn't want to be 
one of these people. I started to become everything I didn't like about the people that had hurt me. So I started moving away from the gangs and into relationships, but they weren't the best relationships. I was with controlling boys and, and that cycle of violence I see now really started to play out. Right. I remember I had one of my first boyfriends who just beat me until I was unrecognisable. And I was over the most minor uh, situation, minor disagreement. And I remember coming home and we'd finally got away from my dad. And my mum's looked at me and she's like, what happened? And I lied and said, oh, someone tried to rob me at the station. It just felt like it would have been too cruel. Right. Right. But that's, that's a part of the pattern, isn't it? That's yeah. a part of the pattern, covering for them, covering for you. Um, yeah, it just felt like it would have been too cruel to tell her that my boyfriend had hit me. Do you reckon she knew? No, I don't know. I don't know. I'm still like, oh, she'll listen to this. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> And that's been another interesting part of this journey. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big reasons people don't talk about family violence as well because their parents are still there. Mm. You know, you grow up, you just want to have peace mm. and dad's no longer hitting you. He doesn't have that control and your father becomes a, a frail old person. Um, there's an opportunity there for forgiveness. You kind of, it gets forced upon you, but it's also, it feeds into that, that silence doesn't it? And everything just still gets left unsaid. And then without it being said, perhaps that cycle is going to come around again and it's going to come through your kids. Did you find yourself before you, like when you were still with this gang of kids, did you find yourself perpetrating violence? Did you find yourself in the cycle doing the thing that you hated? Like you, I found myself a, a bystander. Um, I do a lot of work now around ethical bystanding. It's so important because I felt powerless, but I felt the power. And it was intoxicating and it was horrific. And there were things that, you know, I can't unsee, that I can't undo, um, that I certainly feel shame and, and not proud of, but well, there's, there's always no buts. The only thing I can, I can take away from it is that I did the best that I could with the experience and the skills that I had. And it's what I talk about now with kids. You do the best that you can. Mm. And if you've been given you know, a, a tougher set of cards to start, you're going to play it yeah. differently in that moment when you see somebody, you know, probably the worst thing I ever saw was, was a group of kids and they set on this, this older guy, an old man, just going out to get the paper. And that, that was a catalyst moment for me. I went, no, I can't. Can't be a part of this. Right. It's, it's just not a, cool. An old bloke going to get the paper. but Old bloke going to get a paper in a city. At that stage I was living in Housing Commission in Glebe and... It was just, you know, anything goes for a lot of these kids. No hope. Mm. Just no hope. They just don't care about themselves. Just no care. Nothing to live for, so why care? 
don't know if they see that. I think that they're surviving. They don't see life as living. They see it as taking, getting through, surviving. Mm. Um, there's not a lot of living down there and you can – well, I'm not saying – certainly not saying there's not a lot of living in Glebe. It's one of the most spectacularly fabulous, vibrant, amazing communities. I'm really proud to have, to have lived there um, and Newtown and – but the street kids there, they're, they're just lost souls, forgotten souls. And I had this one experience when I set up Kiot Project and one of my first workshops was with King's Cross Police and a group of kids off the street. And I thought the police were just paying for it. I didn't realise they were going to be in the workshops and <laughs> these kids would walk out of these workshops and they'd be getting arrested by these cops every other day. So you could cut the air with a knife. I'm in this dojang, I'm in Woolloomooloo in PCYC. It was the best experience. I'm so grateful for it. Um, I walk in and the, the, the street kids or the kids that have got social issues, their shoulders are down, their eyes are down and they're sort of picking at their skin, their clothes are rough. And the, the cops, like alpha males, like 20 alpha male cops and they're in their police sports uniforms and and I thought, oh, my God, how's this going to play out for <laughs> the next eight weeks? And I just turned the music up and I got them all running around the room and it became really clear to me that all these kids want is a sense of belonging. They want a sense of community and they found it in that little workshop and they worked with the police. And I remember on day one I had this one boy turn around and say to me, this is bullshit, I'm not doing this. And I said, not only are you going to do this, you're going to be so great that by the end of it you're going to get up and you're going to demonstrate to not only me but we're going to invite all the local cops down and open this whole demonstration up to the community. Eight weeks later, whether it's because I believed in him or I made him step up, this kid that couldn't look me in the eye gets up and he performs all his self-protection, all his self-protection techniques and all his self-defence moves with the police in front of like 30 people. And um, before then he was smoking meth he was out of school. By the end of it, one of the senior officers came up to me and said he'd asked about joining the police force. Far out. Yeah. In eight weeks. In eight weeks. It's a hell of an intervention. Yeah, I don't call it an intervention. I call it building a sense of community. Hmm. You belong somewhere. Yeah. And when I look back on that time with these kids, we all just felt like we didn't belong anywhere. And what we were getting from each other was that family. Yeah. And the role models were dealers. The role models were these out-of-work 35-year-old blokes who, with all due respect to everybody who rides skateboards, but, you know, like they, <laughs> they were giving kids pot and other drugs and they, they – that – we were their community. We were their little kingdom. We were totally clueless. And I love that I can step up now and be that role model, especially with these kids that are so 
not engaged. And I go, I get it. I see you. I've been you. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's another side to this, but let's just all do this thing together. And to do it with the police, that was even better. <laughs> yeah. Hold that thought. I've got to change batteries. All right. Okay. God, batteries again. I feel happy. Okay. It's a very thirsty machine. It's very robust, but it's a very thirsty one. And uh, if the file breaks halfway through, it doesn't say, I've lost a show like that. I don't want to do it again. Um, okay, so you said that you saw, like, there was this one particular moment when you were with this gang of kids and you were like, that's it. I can't, I can't do this anymore. Mm. Um, and you said, but from there you went from that into uh, intimate relationships, but they were quite dysfunctional. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so uh, I started... I started dating this guy who, oh, well, he was an abuser. He was a classic right. abuser. I mean, he, he just was the same as my father. He wanted to cut me off from my friends. But I felt loved and I felt important and uh, he looked after me and these were all things that, you know, I was prepared to trade for the insecurity, you know, and, and my self-worth at that stage was, was pretty low, was very low. And it was just a natural progression until he, he hit me really seriously. Um, that's when I came home to mum and, yeah. and the look on her face I mean, I don't know, we still haven't had this conversation. I'm sure she would remember it very clearly, but the look on her face was like, wow. And I, I never dated him again. Yeah, right. I certainly dated some emotionally vacant, scary, frightening individuals after that, but, but the physical. Right. And then I started dating this one guy and I was about 19 and he went to a private school and he was well-mannered and he hadn't been arrested and his car wasn't stolen. I thought, yeah, it's a good one. He's a keeper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and on one of our first dates, he took me to a martial arts grading and it was... That's where you do the <laughs> fights to get a belt. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it was a demonstration of a student's mastery and so he took me to this grading and... He did Hapkido, which is involves multiple self-defence. And I couldn't believe that I was sitting in this sweaty gym watching this guy show off and it actually worked. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I was like, this is amazing. I was really impressed by the women. There was these two women and they were going for their grading, so they were going for their black belts. And they were the shit. They had bodies flying everywhere and they were strong and they were powerful. And this was the first time I'd ever seen martial arts apart from monkey magic. And <laughs> this was the first time that it had ever occurred to me that I could do that. I could have a go at that and maybe protect myself. And this was off the back of, and it wasn't, it was probably only a year earlier that my, I'll just digress for a second, that my best friend and I were walking through Darling Harbour and a group of guys, about 10 guys, were on a bucks night and they circled us and 
my first response was to give them a piece of my mind and one of these guys turned around and hit me. I said to my girlfriend, I instinctively knew that this was a pack and it was going to escalate and, you know, in a split second made the decision, told her to run and get help. While she ran off to get help, these guys continued to hit me and I was being rolled into the water of Darling Harbour. I heard them saying, roll her into the water and I was half unconscious. And I came to... And I can't tell you how furious I was. I'm still angry. I'm still like, I, there's not a whole lot of forgiveness for these people. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I was an 18 year old kid and I was able to, I got up and I ran after them. I ran after these cowards and they got onto a Bucks bus and there was this little this little old man driving the bus and he could see the state of me and I said, this bus is not going anywhere and I'm screaming and yelling and I'm launching myself at this driver and he was just very compliant and calm. And then these guys that had just only moments before been attacking me and being prepared to throw me into the water start crying and weeping, please don't tell our mums, don't tell anybody, you know, we're so sorry. And... Uh, this was near a nightclub, old Bobby McGee's down in Darling Harbour and all this security came down and we had police, we had ambulance, we had fire and I'm still holding on like almost in a headlock. I think I had the guy in a headlock. The driver. Driver. And I was just furious. They were not going to get away with this. So I was able to press charges against one of the, one of the men and um, I had the magistrate, Pat O'Shane, who's a very well-known Indigenous feminist uh, magistrate. And my story became headline news. So I'd spoken to a reporter after this court case. By the way, the the guy got like a six-month good behaviour bond and... That's not even a slap on the wrist. No. And and believe it or not, he, he... he wanted to, what's the word when they, they take you back to court again? So he, he. What, he wanted to charge you? No, no, no. When he, he wanted to appeal. 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 Oh, yes. Dear God. Blank. Um, he appealed. The next time we went back, the court, the magistrate said that he was going to suggest a custodial sentence. So he quickly changed his tune Far again. Anyway, I walk out of this court case, 18, just my head spinning, spent a week sitting in the witness box being told that I put it to you that you were asking for it, that you were wearing a sheer blouse. I put it to you that, you know, you you caused the whole situation to happen. Uh, The victim blaming and the slut shaming, which we have words for it now, certainly didn't then. Um, I remember the magistrate, Pat O'Shane, saying that if it wasn't so serious, she was going to laugh at the case. Anyway, I walk out of the, this court case finally not really feeling any sense of, of win or victory. I'd never told anybody in my family about it. I just did this process. Uh, I just thought these guys needed to be brought to justice and I didn't really care <laughs> um, the outcome. I just wanted to go through the process. And I had this 
very quick interview with this journalist. I don't know why or how it came to be. Many months later, I'm getting in a car, getting in a taxi, and I sit in the back of the cab and this driver turns around and says to me, you're a very stupid girl, you're an idiot. I'm like, what? I'm looking around, is there someone else in the car? Is this guy talking to himself? And he goes, you're an idiot, what did you do that for? He shows me the paper, I'm the lead story, I'm the national Female story. Female driver? No, male driver. Male driver. And the, the, the headline was the Daily Telly was model claims victory over Buck's night assault. And there's this huge picture of me and basically they painted me as a man-hating victim out to ruin fun for all men on Buck's nights. Unbelievable. Well, <laughs> Daily Telegraph. Very believable. <laughs> I'm sorry. It wasn't, it wasn't just them. So my nan gives me a call later that night. You know, they're talking about you on the talkback, on the radio. I'd never even told them anything that had happened. Yeah. Um, I went to work. I worked in a pub and there was media camped out the front and my boss at the time said, well, you can't do a shift. There's too many media here. We can't have you work. And today, tonight, or no, I'm sure it was today, tonight. It's current affairs show. Yes, so current affairs show. And they turned around and said, well, we'll give you some money to cover your wage today. You know, worked, I was living on my own, working as a barmaid um, during the day or at night and then working and studying in college during the day. Anyway, I needed the money. So I said, sure, I'll do it. And just not having any idea about the media and their agenda and, and what it is that they wanted mm-hmm. from my story. And I just remember this whole experience being this really shameful time and something that I never spoke about, never spoke about, just until I'm there at this martial arts grading. And I'm watching this woman throw these guys everywhere and I thought, okay, <laughs> I think I can do this. Um, so that was like 22 years ago and that guy that took me to the grading is my husband. Oh. <laughs> and I went on to become to become the Australian Hapkido Woman of the Year in 2005. So I really threw my all into that training and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. What did you find in the the discipline of martial arts? Oh gosh, where do I start? Where do I end? There was so much. It was such an amazing experience. It still is. I'm still very much part of the martial arts community. Uh, I felt a real sense of belonging. Um, it mattered that I was there, and it mattered when I wasn't there for all the right reasons. Uh, when you start training and you commit. So after about three months, you know whether or not this is something that you really want to do because it takes you three months to know the difference between your arms and your legs, these things that you thought that you (laughs) you knew how to use. Um, Yeah, I spent so much time on my ass for the first year. (laughs) And I, um, I really took away that sense of belonging, I really took away a sense of accountability that I had to be responsible 
for my body and my language and my thoughts um, that I could have strength and the power to seriously kick someone's ass and choose not to do it. (laughs) So I think that skill set or that mindset when I was 13 or 14 would have been invaluable. Right. Because you you mentioned uh, in that by the time we're 13 or 14, I was – when Audrey asked me who's coming over tomorrow because, like I said, you know, we've got a 13-year-old girl. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting. You know, you mentioned by the time you're 13 or 14, chances are you've done surf life-saving or you've done life-saving as part of swimming at school. So you know CPR. You know to dial triple O if something goes wrong. You know how to cross a road. You know, you know, unfortunately, don't leave your drink alone, you know, but do you know how to recognise that you're in some sort of violent relationship? And the answer is probably no. Nailed it. You totally nailed it. They were the first person I called um, when I started to consider the idea that I could use my self-defence training and my personal experience and, and that knowledge and those street smarts. And I thought, God, you know, surf life-saving tonight. Mm. <laughs> I, they've completely smashed it. You know how to swim between the flags. Well, some I'm people sorry. don't. I've, oh, yeah, some people don't. I've done 12 years of Bondi <laughs> Rescue. A lot, a lot of people don't know how to swim between the flags. And that's okay oh. because I've got a – it's a job and it's a nice job. <laughs> oh. Oh, sorry, I just got overexcited with what you said then because I completely relate but to it. But it's true. No, but it's true. Like we know as kids swim between the flags, you know. Yeah. We, we know as kids, um, you know, I know it's we, – we're told a lot of things but we are often not taught how to recognise – a either, a, uh, uh, either physical violence or emotional violence mm. or controlling behaviours. We're not taught to recognise, hang on, this isn't right, I shouldn't be okay with what's happening. Because, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of the times before the explosive phase of the cycle of violence, there's, there's an escalation phase, mm. which you, there's plenty of things that are fairly common behaviours that happen before the explosion happens. Mm, absolutely. There's a violence expert in the state in the states called Gavin De Becker, and he wrote this book called The Gift of Fear. And I love this book. Everybody should read it because it's about your intuition. It's about tapping into all those little signals that can predict upcoming violence, violence against you. Um, it's about understanding the landscape of violence and how. Statistically, really, I, I know, I know, I know. It kind of feels like a dangerous thing to say in a time where we've got escalating terrorist attacks. And yeah, but let's 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 be absolutely hundred percent honest. And I say this all the fucking yeah. time. There's, you know, I can't tell you how many women will die this week at yeah. the hands of their intimate partner. That's yet right. for some reason, we're supposed to be terrified of uh, a lonely teenager who's been radicalised that might do something bad yeah. in Western <laughs> Sydney when right now today there are women being beaten the shit out of by their husbands yeah. and no one gives a shit. Yeah. Um, you know, so terrorism makes headlines but DV doesn't. You know what Gavin DeBecker said? He said that if you took a jumbo jet full of passengers and you smashed it into the side of a mountain three times over, Week in, week out, in one month, it still wouldn't equal the amount of women that are killed each day in domestic violence. In the States? In the States. Holy moly. And, you know, closer to home, 
it's still the leading cause of preventable death for girls from the age of 15 to women age 44. Get out of here. Yeah. The leading cause of preventable death yeah. is domestic violence. Mm. I didn't Intimate say it. Partner violence. I didn't, I didn't say it, but I wish I remember the name of the woman that said it. But she said if as many men were killed by sharks as women are killed by their partners, we would drain the ocean. Mm. We would tomorrow. So why isn't it hitting home? I, I think I have one of those answers. I think it doesn't resonate because we're not talking about us. It's, it seems so behind closed doors, but it's not. You know, the people, I know the people listening to this right now, I know that you grew up like I did. A third of you did. That, and that's just mi- at minimum. So it's about stepping up and stepping into our story, owning it, being accountable. And that, that was one of the great lessons from martial arts for me. And it was something that I hadn't learnt at home. I mean, it's not, and don't get me wrong, my mum's an incredible human being and she's the most honest woman. She has more integrity and courage and strength in her pinky finger than most people that I've met and, and I've met some incredibly strong, courageous people. But the congruence, the lack of congruence in family violence is something that we need to talk about. You can have a really strong, courageous, resilient parent and then one that is, is bringing them down and, and, and controlling their lives and then, be, and then be a three-year-old and a five-year-old and a nine-year-old and a 14-year-old and make sense of that. Yeah. You can't. So, I mean, it's starting to get to the point now where, you know, Gigi's going, and if I get a bit freaked out, you know, because she's just starting to go out to parties a lot more. And they're not parties like I used to go to. They're parties with 100 people, DJs and security. Mm. It's, fuck it, it's a dance party. Yeah. And, you know, I, I go to Audrey, I'm like, but I know 14-year-old boys, I used to be one. And if you are anything like me, when I was that age, there's really only one thing that you want to do when you're, yeah. when you're a woman. Um what kind of things do you talk to, you know, girls of, of her age? And I'm not just asking this to, you know, get some free advice, though I'm asking you to get this free advice. <laughs> uh, I'm interested to know, like, how do you, I mean, this is a kid, as you say, at such an important age, 13, 14, but it's also an age where girls are like, well, at least, you know, Gigi is like, I don't talk, I don't talk about sex, I don't know about sex. Like she doesn't, she gets yeah. kind of creeped out when grown-ups yeah. talk about sex. So how do you start broaching this topic because you kind of got to put the in, the information in there before, you know, hormones get involved and you start making decisions based on other parts of your body telling you what to do. Yeah. Um, what are what are some of the things you tell young girls of that age? It's about self worth. Mm-hmm. It's about owning your flaws, owning your strengths and your weaknesses, uh, and and. We live in this time and it's always been this way. It certainly was when I was growing up where um, girls are told to, you know, not have sex and, and, and they're told to watch what they wear and watch what they talk because boys, that's all they want. That's what they're coming for. And why don't we turn that conversation around and if you 
a loving, caring, open-minded parent who's promoted healthy discussion and, and you know you've done the work with your teen, then give them the benefit of the doubt that they're going to make the right choices and maybe start talking to them from, from that angle uh, rather than the, uh, you know, the old I'm going to get a shotgun, which a lot of men do and did. You know, certainly as a kid, you know, the growing up in the schools I grew up in, it was pretty much like if you masturbate, your fucking hands will fall off, <laughs> you'll go blind. I really thought it was like, well, this is it. It feels nice. So I guess it's one way to go. <laughs> I wasn't about to stop. Honesty. Right. A bit of honesty. Yeah. A bit of honesty and compassion and, and you know, girls look to – they, they govern within themselves as well. It's not hard to find out the, you know, what am I doing here? Air, thing, air quotes. Air quotes, the sluts mm. and the bitches and the moles and there are plenty of girls out there and your GG will probably be one of them too who when it comes down to making those choices will make the choices the right ones. She can only control her world. You know, in these workshops I get, and this was told to me by Jason Dolan, I don't ever want to not credit the people that have given me their amazing insights. And he's um, a decorated Australian Army officer and he mm-hmm. said, look, when it comes to combat, when it comes to fighting for your life, draw a circle around your feet. That's it. That's about all you can control. And I thought that just goes for your whole life, doesn't it? And I digress a little bit, but when I talk to these girls, I go, you know what, you can control this. You can control you. You're Mm. in charge. And really your safety is your responsibility. We've got mobile phones and parents and teachers and police and all these things, but I call it your big girl, your big girl undies moment. When it comes right down to it, it's just going to be you making that choice. And you've got to be you. Does that make sense? Mm. You've really got to be you. You've got to live with you. You've got to wake up with you. You've got to see that friend the next day. You've got to know whether or not if you didn't report it um, that those guys are going to assault another girl. You, You have to live with that. And inspiring kids to make different choices, smarter choices, is the way to go. Giving them a laundry list of shit they should and shouldn't do doesn't work. Couldn't care less. Sorry, all those well-meaning campaigns where, you know, your top five, these are things you shouldn't do. I mean, it's great to break it down, but what they want is real-life stories. Yeah. They want to hear that. You, know, you can hear the pin drop when I talk to 100 kids and I tell them a real-life story and not from a position of, you know, if you do this, you could end up you know, like, like a, a fairy tale, like a grim fairy tale, this could all happen to you. Mm. Just the reality, hey, one minute I'm here, the next minute I'm there and there's a group of guys here and I've just yelled out and I've said what's on my mind and I made this choice and I've got, I got to live with that choice. Yeah. So what do you, so that. No, digress. No, 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 it's fine, it's fine. So that's something you say to young, young girls. So what, what, do you say to, what do you say to young boys because I. The same thing. Yeah. Stop talk, talking to boys as though they're just these sex crazed maniacs. I've, I've I've become friends with some some young men um, 
the head of the school captain at Newington College, he recently came along to a fundraiser and he spoke about the time when I when I came to the school and and talked to them about gender equality and domestic violence and and giving them the perspective that they too are dealing with the same stuff girls are dealing with. But we've got to stop making out that the boys are a problem or girls are a problem. What they all are is a community going through the same issues. And if we can strengthen those bonds, if we can inspire them to stand up for each other and stand up for themselves and speak out and be accountable and be ethical bystanders, everyone's that's going to have a, a trickle-on effect and everyone's going to make smarter choices. I see kids, as young, like young boys as young as 10 and younger, with their own iPhone, with their own account. I'm like, no one's supervising that all the mm. time. Mm. So, you know, what's, what's different there? What can, what can you tell parents and, you know, young adults about all the porn networks? So I think another, another conversation, and I've had this at my school with some of the mums, and they're like, well, my, my son doesn't do that. Oh, yes, he does. Yeah. <laughs> I can oh, tell yes, you he does. right damn now he and does. And it's not, it's not about what I think. Statistically, 98% of Australian boys uh, have watched triple X-rated porn by the age of 14. It's 100% by the age of, you know, 18, it's not whether or not they've seen it. That's not the question. The question is how are they processing it? And I think the best way to have that conversation is to just ask them, and the same for daughters as well, what do you know? What have you seen? Let's talk about it. Rather than going, you know, so let's talk about (laughs) these trends as part of, the work that I was doing with teen boys, I started researching what was trending in porn. You can't unsee that. You know, you can't unsee it. And that's, I said to these boys, you know, so if you want to, you want to be intimate with a girl, what's the, what's the first thing that you do? What, what are you going to do? And they're like, well, not a whole lot of hands go up when it's a big group of boys because they're all just like, oh, my God, she's talking about porn. Yeah. <laughs> she said boobs. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, they, things are escalated. And I said, you know, you, you really like a girl and you want her to know you like her, hold her hand. Mm. Step one. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not flop it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Unsolicited dick pics? Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. You know? And, and when it does come to sexy times, here's a tip. Uh, anal is like a fucking motorcycle stunt. Oh. It, is, it is, you know, it's not. <laughs> yeah. A, a, anal. <laughs> you know, I look at, you know, I, uh, the, the way I try and think about it is that, you know, uh, real human sex between two people that love each other is to um, porn sex as a bar fight is to a Jackie Chan movie. Yeah. Right? Yeah, they're both people hitting each other, but one is so ramped up to the you know nth degree and shot to look like it's super intense and exciting and frightening and full on. Whereas like the real, like there's a fantastic woman that's been on the show twice now, Cindy Gallup, and she has a, a great website called Make Love Not Porn and she mm. talks about the... Um, you know, the way that 
you know, the research she's been doing is that kids as young as 16 and 17 have sex where only their genitals touch mm. because that's all they've seen. Yeah. They've seen sex happen in a way that looks good on camera. But so only their genitals are touching, right? It's not intimate at all. No. It's not holding someone that you love. It's not kissing. It's not the, the, the congress of two bodies coming together. Yeah. No, it's, it's just kind yeah. of, yeah. So that's, you know, h- how do you talk to girls about, you know, I mean, Girls, as much as boys, are driven by hormones and driven by parts yeah. of their bodies that start making decisions for them. Yeah. Um, as, you know, a very wise man once said to, to, to me, said, don't let the little head do the thing you for the big head. Um, <laughs> uh, and a wiser man said to me, make those decisions before you get excited. Ooh. Because once you get excited, all those decisions go out the window. Yeah. Um, so what do you say to girls and boys about, about that? Well, for me, and, and the stuff that I like to talk to kids about more specifically is around that intimate partner violence. And I relate it back to all these messages that they're seeing, not just in porn, but in video clips, in video games. Justin Bieber song. And I, I love Justin Bieber. I'm certainly not canning him. You know, um, oh, what was it called? The What Do You... What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? Do you, do you ever see the film clip to that? Uh, when, when your body says yes but something says no. I, I'm not even talking about the lyrics. The film clip. Oh, I haven't seen yeah, it. It's amazing. So he's in a hotel room with I think she's supposed to be his girlfriend and it's all a bit raunchy. She's wearing it's nothing. There's the neon lights. They're, they're rolling around and then these group of men in balaclavas, break through the door, they put a bag over her head, a bag, actually they chase her around the room, she's standing on the bed, terrified, they bag her over the head. The next scene, they're in a car, they're in the boot of a car, he's holding a lighter, it's all very romantic. Uh, She's, now, she's been driven to an industrial complex where these same masked men are chasing these two through an abandoned warehouse. They come up to this big giant crescendo at the end and he says, take, take my hand, trust me. Yeah. They jump out of a window to get away from the crazed yeah. kidnappers and they land in a skateboarding rink and it was all just a joke. He'd paid for the whole thing and the whole thing was just like this really fun experience where... You know, you get your girlfriend in a hotel room and then you take her. And now this is the number one worldwide. This is, I'm talking to these boys at a time where this is number one song off the charts. Yeah. And I'm like, guys, if you pay to have your girlfriend bagged over the head, abducted, put in the boot of a car, run through an industrial complex, I can promise you, it's not going to go well for you. No. This is not going to turn out well no, for you. No, no, no. So it's not just porn. And, and, I, you know, and I don't want to be that one going, you know, video clips. I don't want to be like that town in Footloose where you can't dance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not just porn. It's all around. It's every message. It's, yeah. It's, so what does it come down to for these kids? What's the, what's the, what's the message that you... You try to instill in these young women and men. Open to- your eyes, look at it, make choices. Yeah. Yeah. So 
for me, I, I talk to them about media. I talk to them about advertisements. I talk to them about um, video clips and and just the community, the social fabric of our community, mm. and just try and join some dots. Yeah, you know, if you buy that fragrance, you are not going to have a woman drape herself over you. Um, and I, you know, I buy the fragrances too, but I guess. The takeaway for teens is that is this really what they want? To ask the questions is does that make sense? Right. Does that seem like a good time for a girl? Would I like to be bagged over the head and put into the boot of a car and run screaming for my life? No, the answer is no. And what about for young women when you, you, uh, do you talk to them about Look, if you are with a guy and he says, you look at me or the wall, that might not be a good relationship. But no. They, do you talk about that yeah. sort of thing? Yeah. We talk about saying what you mean and meaning what you say. Yeah. So it comes back to your boundaries, your intuition, and, and recognising and stepping into a situation that doesn't feel right. And whether that's in a relationship, at a party with a guy that, you know, you think you like and he's pushing your boundaries or whether it's standing on a train and there's somebody standing too close to you. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Step one is to recognise and acknowledge it doesn't feel right. And that's an education. That's something you have to learn. It's something you have to talk to kids about and teach them about. I'm astounded in one day... I went from Askham, which is a beautiful, exclusive girls' school in the eastern suburbs, to King's Cross Police and kids that didn't even have a school in the PCYC. At the end of the day, I was in an underfunded public school um, in Campbelltown. I asked the same question all day. Hands up if you know what that internal guardian is when something doesn't feel right. Nobody could tell me. Maybe two students who could say intuition. So important. Osha, it's so important that they listen to their intuition, they understand they're in a situation that doesn't feel right, and then they can go, mm-mm, this is not how it's going to go down. I don't want to have sex with you like that. I don't want to talk to you or give you directions. You're creeping me out, strange, random person. And it just seems so simple. But it's so powerful because then you're giving kids permission to speak out, say something, do something, take action. Giving yourself permission to take action is such a foreign concept (laughs) when you're a kid, especially teenage girls. You know, they want attention from people that aren't their own age as much as they would like the earth to swallow them whole. Your girl, your 13-year-old, does not want to have a conversation with you about sex. No. It's like putting a neon sign on her head that says, awkward, can we please not? (laughs) Um, But, you know, we've got a parent. We've got a parent. I've just totally just gone off on a bit of a tangent No, 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 it's fine. No, 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 it's totally fine. (laughs) Just the other thing you mentioned, I just don't want us to let it disappear. Um, You talked about being an ethical bystander. Yeah. What do you mean by that? 
So um, ethical bystanding, I found this really interesting. I have now had personal experiences where I was assaulted on the street as a young person and nobody came to help me. Nobody stepped up, nobody chucked a citizen's arrest. I was standing at the front of a pub with my girlfriend and there was this group of guys and they were having a big argument out the front of smoking, drinking, and this guy starts walking down the street. He's punching the air and he's all aggro. I look over at him and he looks at me and he catches my eye. And I felt scared. I thought, this guy's a psycho. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to engage with this guy, but I pushed that feeling down. I turned my back and I kept talking to my girlfriend and that's when he hit me so hard. If I wasn't standing in front of a light pole, I would have gone into the oncoming traffic. As it was, I'm holding onto this pole and nobody stops, nobody says anything. And my first response is to give this guy a spray because that's what I did. I was an angry young mm. woman. It's like, what did you do that for? You freak, turns around, comes back, starts punching me in the face, blood everywhere, my front teeth knocked out. My best friend who... Uh, had never seen anything like this. She actually grew up in a really um, beautiful, loving family and never seen any street violence. She's like, what the hell was all that about? And I never used to tell that story either because, again, I was ashamed by my, my response. So when I started talking to these kids, I discovered that a lot of them had had the same experiences and I started researching what's going on for people. Why aren't they stepping up? And in the 60s, it's a bit of a mm. story. So in the 60s, there was a woman named Kitty Genovese. Yeah. Did you hear that story? Yeah, in, in New York. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I found it really interesting that the research that came out of it, when the two researchers, Biblatane and John Daly, they started conducting all these social experiments about why people don't step up mm. or help. In, in a situation and now I'm able to explain to kids why if somebody's hurting you or assaulting you or, or attacked you, why it feels like nobody cares or nobody helped. And, you know, the top five reasons were blame. People don't step up because they don't want to get blamed for the situation. They don't want to look like they did it. There was accountability. Um, it looked like maybe you brought it on yourself so they they think, well, you deserve it. Um, people don't step up or they're not. By the ethical bystander, you're meaning don't be the bunch of guys standing at the front of the pub doing nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And when people don't step up, right, the victim can make that mean that, that they deserved it or especially – because you don't know how you're going to respond, especially when you're really young, in a crisis. Mm. You don't know your body's response. You know the freeze, fight, flight. Mm-hmm. Um, I found this really interesting that when they first did that research, it was with men, and when they did it again, they've now included friend and flop because in a crisis a woman's more likely, especially in a sexual assault situation, to become compliant mm-hmm. and try and get an unsafe person on side or to become immobile and just shut down rather than these other. But, but you know, whatever, all of these responses are what you do. Mm. It's just your, your body's flight, f- 
fight or flight mechanism. If if people have been listening and, um, you know, I mean, before before the show, I'll do a big trigger warning and I'll, I'll put the lifeline number mm-hmm. out and other stuff like that. But if if people have been listening and and they've got kids who are just coming into the teenage years and they'd like to know more, you already mentioned a few books. What is what are some things that they can they can read up on? So definitely queen bees and wannabes is a, is a must for anybody with a teenage girl. Understand the social status and how that gets traded and um, that will make your life a whole lot easier. Uh, for uh, The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker is an amazing resource. But two, two fine, fine books. And tell me, how do I, how do I say this word here? Kip. Kip it means to shout. To shout. It's a Korean where we're using martial arts and it's the spirit of self-defence. And when I do workshops, it's about giving kids a voice, whether it's to speak out um, and speak up for each other or whether it's to shout out in self-protection or to turn around that negative self-talk. It all comes back down to the power of the voice and that's for boys and girls. And Kiop is like my raw for martial arts. Mm-hmm. So that's, and, and all martial artists will, will get that reference. I vaguely recall it yeah. from Kiop. the Taekwondo that I did a million years yeah. ago. Yeah. Long time ago. Um, cool, man. Well, thanks so much for coming around. Thank you. You feel all right? I mean, I know, you know, we had to get the tissue box. And we, <laughs> we went through some dark times there. Are you okay? Yeah, no, I'm good. You all right? You're going to go have I'm coffee good. with your mate now? Yeah, I'm going to go see my bestie. She's around the corner. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for coming in, Mel. Oh, thank you. It was uh, awesome. Unreal. Nice gonna, to meet you and Frankie. I'm going to snap your photo real quick, okay? Okay, let's Okay, do sweet. It. Thank you. All right. That was Mel Thomas. You can find out more about the Key Up Project by following her on Twitter at KYUP Project or keyupproject.com.au. She does um, workshops, so she can come to your kid's school or come to your school if you're uh, a student. Just reach out and uh, figure out how she can come. I was trying to get her to come to Georgia School, actually. A big thank you to you for listening. Uh, because I only get to do the show because you get to listen. If I didn't see the downloads that come through every month, I you know, wouldn't be inspired to keep making the show, but more people keep listening to the show every week and it just thrills me beyond measure. So thank you so, so much for being a part of this conversation that I have every week. A big thank you to my production coordinator, Haley, who uh, went leaps and bounds and flaming hoops to make this conversation with me and Mel happen today because we recorded it in the middle of possibly my busiest week of all time. And a big thank you to Andy, my uh, audio producer, who not only this week tried to teach me how to do Pro Tools over a Skype screen share, which I failed miserably at, but is editing this late on a Sunday night to make sure that it's ready for your Monday morning commute. So thank you, Haley. Thank you, Andy. I love you both. And most mostly thank you for listening uh, because you're ace. Thank you also to Toe Hider for making all the background music because Toe Hider makes everything better. Until we speak next week, go for a run. Go for a walk. Just do 40 minutes where you don't look at your phone. Do some exercise. You'll be surprised how well, much better you feel. Until we speak next time, take care, sleep well, and dream of beautiful things. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.